You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 19. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me for another edition of The Raven and the Writing Desk. If this is your first time listening to the show, this is where I report out to you on my writing endeavors and share fresh new fiction straight from my writing desk. My goals are to write at least 400 words per day and at least six hours per week. You'll hear how I did this week a little later in the show. For now, let's get to the story. Today I'm bringing you part four of my new Metamore City short novel, The Three Graces. If you haven't listened to parts one through three yet, you can find them in episodes 16, 17, and 18 of this show. Past episodes are available through iTunes and at chrislester.org. In our last episode, the three members of the Grace family fell into servitude to Priestess Elura of the Church of Eternal Brotherhood. It was revealed that at least part of Elura's power comes from the fact that she is a vampire. In order to keep her husband and daughter from falling away from the faith, Amelie allowed Elura to use her to help bind Nathan to Elura's service as a thrall, a vampire's blood slave. Natalie became Allura's personal attendant, a cross between a chambermaid and a human pet. In spite of the fact that the Graces have been enslaved to Allura's will, life is going remarkably well for them. Amelie is advancing in her education as an acolyte of the church. Nathan was hired on directly by Allura to be the church's legal counsel, which brought him great wealth and prestige when he stopped a vampire-run maintenance contractor from swindling the church. Both Nathan and Amelie have become Allura's sexual playthings, to their mutual enjoyment and satisfaction. And Natalie? Well, Natalie is happy, though she feels like her life has turned into a dream in which she has no control over anything that happens to her. And somewhere deep inside Nathan Grace, a tiny voice of conscience sees the spark being drained out from behind his daughter's eyes, and is powerless to do anything to stop it. The Three Graces, a novel of Metamore City, by Chris Laster. Part 4. Fifteen. Amelie. It was early November when Priestess Allura summoned me to speak with her in the church garden. The first snows had not yet fallen, but the frost had long since killed the plants, so there was no reason for anyone to come out here. It was as lonely a place as could be found in the church. Elora was walking the narrow paths between the planter boxes. The sun had already slipped behind the mountains, but the twilight lingered, and I could see the distant and troubled expression on her face. "'You sent for me, my lady?' I asked. "'Amelie, yes.' She gestured to the door. Shut that, will you? We mustn't waste the heat. Of course, mistress. I pulled the door shut behind me and came forward, stopping on the opposite side of a planter box from her. She stood for a long time in silence before speaking. Do you know of Malcolm Ardvalos, child? Elora asked. I frowned and thought. He's a financier, is he not? Owed money, but not of noble blood. Yes. He is also a vampire. A very old one, with a strong bloodline. 
her mouth twisted in distaste. And he is the prince over this city. To say I was taken aback would be an understatement. The prince? I don't understand. Majestrix Kaya rules in Metamor. Majestrix Kaya rules the day. Malcolm Ardvalos rules the night. Every illicit, shadowy thing, every casino, every drug den, every corrupt judge or police officer or senator, these are his to command. For the glory and gain of our beloved queen, of course. The sarcasm in her voice spoke volumes about the man. I see. And do you answer to Malcolm Ardvalos? Do we serve him? No, we do not, Ilura said emphatically. The Church of Eternal Brotherhood has always been under separate authority from the criminal syndicate. That is the way the Queen intended it to be. Let me guess, I said. Malcolm Advalos wishes to change that. Elura nodded once, slowly. He sees opportunities the control of the Church would provide him. He cannot bind me to his service directly, but he has been putting pressure on me in other ways, trying to make me submit. Her eyes flashed with a fierce yellow-green light. I'll see him in the hells first. I bowed low. Yes, mistress. How can I help? Elora seemed to hesitate. Her eyes grew distant again. You know that I have been grooming you for the priesthood, she said at last. Yes, mistress. By now you must have guessed what this involves. I shivered, and not just from the cold. I would have to become a vampire, would I not? Indeed. Elora looked down at the dead plants poking out of the garden soil. I had hoped to wait until you were older, until your daughter was grown, at least. Mortal life is a precious thing, not to be squandered. I bowed my head. But something has changed your mind. My notion of what is ideal has not changed. Only what is necessary. If Malcolm or one of his enforcers were to turn you, you would be lost to me. You would be forced to obey them in all things. A child cannot deny the orders of its sire. I looked up at her, considering the implications of this. So you believe you must turn me yourself before another vampire has the opportunity? Elora's eyebrows went up. You seem remarkably calm about the prospect. I shrugged. I already obey you in all things, mistress. If I can serve you better as one of your own kind, I am willing. Elora looked at me gravely. This is no small change, Amelie. You cannot understand what it will cost you. You will gain power, yes, but there is a price. She shook her head. I would not ask this of you but I need allies I can trust completely. I have precious few. I held up my arms before her, offering all of myself. My life is yours, mistress. Do with me what you will. I meant it quite sincerely at the time. By then I had spent some fifteen years in service to the church, and several months as one of Allura's most trusted thralls. She had given me clarity and purpose that had transformed my life in a hundred ways. Now she needed my help, needed me to become something greater, so she could preserve what was precious to us. I did not imagine any price was too great for such a privilege. Priestess Allura turned me that night. 
I shall not describe the process. I imagine you must know it well enough. There was pain and terror and darkness. And then more terror when I awoke from that darkness as something else. Elora did her best to comfort me, to help me through the change. But there is no escaping the horror of it. You know, deep in your soul, that something is wrong with your body. Though you have never heard your heart beat before, now you can clearly hear its absence. And the hunger, that gnawing, growling, grasping thing inside you. I thought as a vampire bat that I knew what it meant to crave blood. I was a fool. Elora had made me revert to human form before she turned me. That way this would be my default state after the change. I was conflicted about it then. I was a theriomorph, after all, and my family had carried the bat form with pride since the early days of the curse. Soon, however, I saw the wisdom in her command. Batmorphs are rare in Metamore. Anyone who saw me in that shape could quickly have connected me to Nathan and Natalie. If Malcolm Ardvalos sought to seize control of our church, it would be best to give him as few clues as possible about my weaknesses. She had one of the lesser thralls brought to me, and under Allura's careful guidance I fed for the first time. It was this that cured me of the fear and horror at my new state. To experience the sharing from the other side, as the one being revered rather than the one paying reverence, filled me with a heady thrill that lingered for hours. The thrall had been conditioned, as I had been, to see us virtually as gods. To have such control over another life, to take in a piece of its soul and possess it within myself, was a power like nothing I had imagined. Even the magic of Allura's blood gift had been nothing compared to this. As I said before, you never know what you have until it's gone. That first night, with my teeth in the thrall's neck and its adoring thoughts running through my mind, I saw clearly what I had gained. It was not until later that I understood what I had lost. Sixteen. Natalie. Do you know what it's like to wake up one day and your family's rich? Well, neither did I. At least not when it happened. Like I said, I wasn't exactly awake that summer. Moving into that huge penthouse was just another part of the dream my life had turned into. But Priestess Allura couldn't keep me like that forever. The fall semester was starting. I was going to be in high school now. So my duties to the church were reduced, down to a couple of services a month. And gradually I realized that I could think again. Only I'd woken up to a life that was very different from the one I'd left. Some of the differences were obvious immediately. My new bedroom was twice the size of the old one. There were top-of-the-line computers for me to do research on. My wizard supplies had been updated with new spellbooks and ritual implements. And then, of course, there were the servants. You get used to seeing servants running around at the Church of Eternal Brotherhood, but it was something else to have them in my house. All of a sudden, my clean clothes were just appearing on my bed when I got home, neatly folded and stacked or placed on hangers. There was dinner whenever we said we wanted it, amazing meals that appeared on silver platters and then were taken away without us having to do the dishes. 
As the weather turned colder, the fireplaces were always tended to keep our oversized halls nice and warm. Most of all, though, there was Harrison. The first time I remember seeing him was when he was carrying in a box of legal documents from the skimmer to my father's office. He was old, or at least he looked old to a girl of fifteen. But he was also tall and strong, and he moved as quickly as any of us. He nodded to me as he passed, never missing a step. "'Good afternoon, Miss Grace,' he said. "'Um, hi,' I said, watching him as he continued down the hall and up the stairs. Dad came in behind me a few seconds later. "'Ah, Natalie, good. I see you've met Harrison. He's our new butler.' I stared at Dad. "'You're kidding. We have a butler?' Dad shrugged. "'The Belfry's a big place. We need someone to help us keep everything running.' I felt my eyebrows creeping higher. You named it the Belfry? Dad's smile turned a little sheepish. Too much? I held my fingers a centimeter apart. Little bit. Harrison came back, not looking the least bit out of breath, even after carrying what had to have been eighteen or twenty kilos of papers up the staircase. He bowed to me so deeply I thought he would tip over. My apologies, Miss Grace, he said. I would have preferred a proper introduction on our first encounter. It is a pleasure to meet you. Thanks, I said, feeling awkward. So, um, what exactly are you supposed to do around here? Sorry, I've never actually met a butler before. He made a stiff little face that I thought just maybe could be a smile. I was right, but it would take me months to be sure. Harrison's a hard one to read. That's quite all right, Miss Grace, he said, straightening back to attention. My primary responsibilities are to ensure the smooth running of the household and to safeguard the Grace family's lives, health, and property. That still sounded pretty broad and generic, but I already felt sort of stupid for not knowing anything about butlers, so I didn't try to press for any more details. Okay, I said. Well... I guess I'll see you around, then. Indeed you shall, Miss Grace, Harrison said. He turned his head a bit to look at my dad. Will there be anything else, sir? No, I can unpack my own office. Thank you, Harrison, Dad said. Of course, sir. Dinner at seven. Perfect. Harrison bowed one more time to each of us, then went off to... do butlery things, I guess. What do you think? Dad asked. He seems nice, I said. It's just... Dad smiled. A little weird, huh? Yeah. He put his hand on my shoulder and squeezed. Don't worry, Kit. This isn't going to change who we are. Over the next few months, I started to learn the ways that was true, and the ways that it wasn't. Money doesn't change who you are, exactly, but it sort of makes everything about you bigger. If you're a generous person, you can be super generous. If you're a selfish person, you can be really selfish. And, of course, if you're a crazy person, you can get really freaking crazy. Because who's going to stop you? But while money doesn't change you, I think privilege does. I started figuring this out at my new school, Crofton Academy, when I met my new classmates for the first time. Most of them were super polite. Like, 
these aren't kids, these are robots, polite. We all wore button-down shirts and long dresses and yes-mammed and no-sirred and did our homework and never, ever used swear words. Nobody wore flashy jewelry or fancy shoes, and none of the upperclassmen had expensive skimmers. It all messed with my head, to be honest. I mean, why didn't these teenagers act like the teenagers I knew would act, if they got their hands on a lot of money? I finally asked Harrison about it. The young men and women you are going to school with will be heirs to considerable wealth, he said. Their families have been rich for many generations. They stay rich by being careful with their money and teaching their children to do likewise. Every purchase is treated as an investment, not a display of wealth, so it's important that clothes and vehicles are well made and last a long time, not that they look impressive. That makes sense, I guess, I said. But why are they all so polite? Harrison gave me that almost smile again. Aren't you polite, Miss Grace? Well, sure, but I've never really been a normal kid. I always hung out with the grown-ups. Ah, Harrison said, as if that explained everything. Well, just as young lordlings must learn to be careful with their wealth, they must also learn to be careful with their reputation. The reckless behavior of a noble scion can destroy the honor of a house. I have seen it happen too many times. Some of your classmates understand this. Some are only pretending to understand, and will show their true colors later. But for now, they behave as expected of them. Pretending or not, most of my new classmates were nice to me. I worked hard, especially on my honors monology classes. I wanted to make Adepta Majora before I graduated from college, so I knew I had to start pushing myself early. After a while, I stopped noticing all of the brass and marble finishings and the top-of-the-line equipment, and school was just school again. My classmates may have had good manners, but I eventually realized that they got up to a lot of the same stuff as the commoner kids. Drugs and alcohol and sexual drama. I steered clear of all of it, focused on my classes, my magic, and my church. My first semester blew past faster than I would have believed. Soon it was November and the frost made the skyways sparkle like they were covered with little diamonds. I took the subway home from school on most nights. I know, a lot of out-of-towners think it's crazy for a teenager to ride public transit without a guardian, but you don't realize how good the subways are here, or how terrible the traffic is. Trust me, in a city like Metamore, this is normal. But it did get creepier leaving campus after dark, especially since guild lessons kept me on campus a couple of hours after most everyone else. I started making the trip home with my guildmates, a lot of whom lived in the same fourth-level neighborhood that I did. One night we had just left the subway and taken the lift tube up to our skyway when I got the feeling something was wrong. You hear that? I asked. My friends looked around, frowning. Two of them were humans, two were fellow theriomorphs, but none of them were Batmorphs. What is it, Nat? Francine asked. I flicked my ears back and forth, trying to pinpoint the sound. That's a skimmer truck, I said. Like a delivery truck or something. It's somewhere close. So? Tad asked. So what's it doing up here at this hour? I looked around, trying to spot the truck, 
see if there was a logo or something. I finally saw it, creeping out past a corner about twenty meters behind us. The truck turned in our direction and started making its way slowly up the block. It looked like the driver was hunting for an address. Or, just maybe, like he was following a bunch of kids home from school. Keep walking, I said softly. Don't look. Pretend everything's fine. Who are they? Francine whispered. Don't know, don't want to find out, I said. Pull out your phone like you're checking a text. Dial this number. I gave her the number for Harrison's mobile. Francine punched it in and pushed the talk button. Now what? Don't talk into it, I said. Just stick it back in your pocket, but leave the line open. Francine did what I told her, and we kept on walking. With my super hearing, I heard the dial tone ringing, and then Harrison's voice when he picked up. Belfry, he said. I spoke in a normal tone of voice, but pitched my head down a little so it would carry better into Francine's pocket. Man, this walk home sucks. I wish we could get a pickup. It would be nice to get some sanctuary from this wind. There was silence from the phone for a few seconds. I started wondering if I'd gotten our code word wrong. It wasn't like I'd ever had to use it before, and I'd felt sort of silly about the whole idea when Harrison first suggested it. But then he spoke, and his voice was tense enough that I knew he'd gotten the message. I'll be right there, Miss Grace. Stay where people can see you. Francine's phone beeped as the call ended. Who was that? Tad asked. Our butler, I said. It's going to be okay. He's going to pick us up. Just keep walking. The truck kept creeping up behind us. I forced myself to keep walking at a steady pace, even though all I wanted to do was run. I looked around at the shops and offices fronting the skyway, hoping for witnesses, but most of them were already closed for the day. There were still plenty of skimmers cruising past us. Like I said, the traffic in Metamore is awful. So at least we weren't alone. The trouble was, of course, that Harrison had to fight through that same traffic to reach us. After two blocks, we turned a corner and walked past a city bus, which was just pulling over at the stop. It spat out about twenty men and women in business suits, who filled up the spaces around us on the sidewalk as they made their own way home. Well, I thought, Harrison did say to stay where people could see us. How far away is your man? Tad asked quietly. I don't know, I muttered. It's like six more blocks to our apartment. I scanned the oncoming traffic, but I didn't see Harrison's skimmer yet. We stopped at another intersection, waiting for the light to change. The crowd packed in around us. A little more than I thought was polite, but you get jerks like that in any big city. I didn't think anything of it until I felt something cold and metallic pressing into the back of my neck. The man behind me muttered something in my ear. I couldn't tell what language it was or what it meant. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't move. I heard the same thing at almost the same time from four other people in the crowd, one behind each of my friends. I couldn't turn to look, but I was guessing that each of them had an air mage's ceremonial dagger pressed into the back of their necks, just like I did. This was probably mind magic. Mind meant air, and air meant a dagger was the caster's tool of choice. A skimmer van pulled up to the curb and stopped, right there in the crosswalk. I wasn't sure if it was the same one that had been following us, 
and the people in suits carried me inside. I realized then that my muscles weren't frozen in place. I just couldn't tell them what to do. Definitely an air spell then. Not that being right made me feel any better. They sat me down in the van's middle seat, between two of the women in suits. Two of the men got into the row behind us. I couldn't turn my head, but I heard them climb in and fasten their belts behind me. My friends, though, were left standing on the corner with the rest of the crowd, as the door slid shut and the van pulled away. The whole thing, from stunning to getaway, had taken like twenty seconds. I'd barely had time to feel anything except shock, but as the van pulled into a skimmer lift and headed down, I started to get really, truly afraid. I didn't know who they were, what they wanted, or why they had gone after me. All I knew was that I wanted my mom and dad. Seventeen. Nathan. I was working my usual late shift at the church office when I got the call. It bypassed my receptionist and came in directly to my private line, so I knew it must be serious. Mr. Grace, Harrison said, there has been an incident. Your daughter has been abducted. My head seemed to go numb, my ears filled with a distant buzzing noise. The color washed out of my vision. What? What? I gasped. A team of well-organized operatives kidnapped Miss Grace on her way home from school. He sounded mildly concerned and frustrated, like he was describing an inconvenient motion filed by the opposition, one that would drag out proceedings but wouldn't affect the outcome. It wasn't anything like the tone of voice that should accompany the statement, Your daughter has been abducted. Four of her classmates witnessed the event. I have just questioned them. I looked at the clock. It took several seconds for the time to register with my brain. Just after seven. How long ago did this happen? Very recently, sir. I was en route to retrieve her when it happened, and I just arrived. He paused as if looking down at his watch. Thirteen minutes ago. What? I... Um... I stopped, fumbling over my words. My chest was constricting. I couldn't seem to get enough air. I... I... Deep breath, sir, Harrison said, seriously. Hold each one to a count of five, then release. I did as he suggested. Breathe in. Hold. One. Two. Three. Four. Five. Breathe out. Breathe in. Hold. I kept up the rhythm. Gradually, my heartbeat slowed a little, and after a minute or two, I could speak again. I... I don't understand what's going on, I told Harrison. Where I come from, if a girl is kidnapped, it means she's going to be... I stopped. I couldn't say it, and if I tried, I was going to have another panic attack. It means that they're probably never going to find her again, I said instead. But the way you're talking, it sounds like this isn't like that. Your perception is correct, Harrison said. You are a member of elite society now, Mr. Grace, and by extension, so is your daughter. This draws the attention of a higher class of criminal. Who are they? What do they want? 
There are two likely possibilities. The first is that they are seeking a ransom. In that case, the kidnappers will contact you shortly with their demands. Okay. We should pay them, right? Money isn't a problem. We should take certain precautions in the transfer. These are criminals, after all. But a kidnapping for ransom is a straightforward affair, so long as everyone remains calm. Something in the tone of his voice clued me in to what was coming. But the second kind, it isn't like that, is it? No, sir. Harrison paused and seemed to consider his words. It is also possible that she was kidnapped as insurance. The kidnappers want some service from you, and they intend to hold Miss Grace hostage to your good behavior. I felt like I was going to be sick. For how long? As long as they require your services, and men who would stoop to such things are not easily satisfied. I closed my eyes, thinking of my little girl chained in a dark room somewhere. I wanted to scream, to cry, to wrap my fingers around somebody's throat and squeeze. What do I do, Harrison? Wait for the kidnappers to contact you. Do not leave the church until they do. They may be hoping to lure you or Mrs. Grace away from its protection. Amelie. Oh, gods, I said. Amelie, what am I going to tell Amelie? Just what I have told you, Harrison said firmly. Sir, where is Mrs. Grace, if I may ask? She has not been home in three nights. Priestess Allura said she had an important project that she needed Amelie to work on. She said they mustn't be disturbed. A long silence hung on the phone line. I think you had best disturb them, sir. Part 4. In Part 5, Amelie and Allura get word of Natalie's abduction, but Nathan is in danger as well. Even with all their vampire powers, can they save both of their loved ones before it's too late? And what will it cost them? Find out in next week's episode. They say the pen is mightier than the sword, but neither one will do you any good unless you practice using it. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,802 words this week, over the course of six hours, 
for an average writing speed of 967 words per hour. As of Saturday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 117 days without breaking my chain. This week I was scheduled for four very long days of testing at the lab, and on my day off on Wednesday I had to finish putting together episode 18. Because of this, I took a break from writing Maternal Instinct, and focused on writing author commentaries on my last few stories. The first of these, for cleanup on Skyway 3, has already gone out on the Patreon feed, where it is visible to all subscribers at the $3 a month level or more. I'll be dropping more of these, roughly once a week, until I'm caught up with the stories that have aired to date. These author commentaries are each between 1,000 and 1,500 words long, and they will remain exclusive to Patreon patrons for at least one month after their release. Finally, let's get to the feedback. Hi Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa. This is feedback for part three of The Three Graces. First, I wanted to thank you for your replies to my previous feedback, Hungry Lucy, the musical group. I'm definitely going to be checking them out now. I guess I, I realized I hadn't listened through to the credits in previous episodes, so that's helpful. And also, I appreciated the explanation of Amelie having a spiritual experience that wasn't just caused by Olora. I do understand that those exist. I've heard about them in our world, so it makes sense that they would happen in the world of Metamore as well. This chapter was really heart-wrenching, and it made me have so many feelings, which was cool and also good because I was actually driving and dealing with shitty detours and stuff that usually would make me very anxious and or angry, but the story helped keep me focused on the characters, so thank you for helping me not be anxious or road ragey. I know you didn't mean to do that, but well, you did, so thanks. You're welcome, Sarah. I certainly know how a good story can help keep your mind off of a bad traffic situation. I used to take advantage of that all the time, back in Oakland and Metro Detroit, and it's probably saved me from going to jail for attempted vehicular homicide. I'm glad I could pay it forward to you. Anyway, I have trouble not comparing people's suffering in stories. I don't know why, but in this story, I felt the worst for Nathan because he sees everything happening and he remembers everything and can do nothing to stop it. And then for Natalie, because, you know, she's lost a portion of her life from when she was working for Allura. And then for Amelie, because, you know, what could have just been her serving her church and, like, her having faith and feeling like she's doing her god's mission and stuff instead of all that she's um in this whole vampire shit and we know the vampires are not good guys and at least from making the cut mostly i think it's just it's frustrating because she's only trying to do good but she doesn't realize what she's actually doing here that's true and i think it's not just true for amelie in the church of eternal brotherhood I've been a person of faith all my life, and I've seen religion bring out the best and the worst in people, sometimes in the very same person. And I think that's not surprising. Religion gives people a sense of certainty about the universe and the direction things are running, the way things are supposed to be. Now, on the one hand, that can fill people with the courage to do extraordinary things. On the other hand, it can lead people to substitute the church's doctrines and dogma for their own moral reasoning. As for the vampires being the bad guys, remember that making the cut only showed us one side of things, 
and the telepaths and the vamps are mortal enemies. I hope that in this story, and in subsequent stories, you'll see how the vampires can be... complicated. And I think that the other listener who commented on the um, parallels between the abuse in the Catholic Church and the abuse here was really spot on. It's kind of as if she predicted this stuff coming up because I do consider the situations in which especially Natalie and Nathan were put into to be abusive and, you know, the coercion and the manipulation of them and also of Amelie to an extent because even though she consented to stuff, I feel like she was coerced into stuff. But, like, all of that is just the hallmarks of abuse are there and I appreciate how respectfully but yet still darkly I guess you write abuse because it's a really hard topic to write and I recognize that and I know that sometimes going into like vivid detail makes some people uncomfortable whether they be readers or writers and also you know you want to be just sensitive to the material yet true to the story and I feel like both in this one and in making the cut I personally think that you did a good job with how you wrote situations of abuse so I know I appreciate that at least. Thank you. Abuse is hard to write about and we've seen a few different versions of it in Metamore City. With Victor and Abby, we saw abuse in the form of lies and controlling her environment, and eventually an outburst of uncontrolled physical violence. Abby had loved Victor, but once he attacked her physically, she knew she had to get out. That's a pretty cut-and-dried sort of abuse, but statistically, it's also pretty rare. Some experts estimate that less than 2% of domestic abuse actually goes as far as physical assault and battery, and even in cases that are reported to the police, it's quite rare for the battered partner to be willing to leave everything and run away. With Braddock and Miriam, we had abuse as confinement, physical control, verbal attacks, degradation, and sexual humiliation. That was the hardest one for me to write, and it's also the one where I cut away earliest and chose not to visualize it in as much detail. There was never anything but hatred between Braddock and Miriam. She was a captured enemy, and he did everything his twisted little mind could come up with to break her. This is also rare, at least it is in the modern, civilized world. The way Braddock treats Miriam is much more like the way ancient soldiers would use the victims that they captured in times of war. Even by vampire standards, Braddock's treatment of Miriam is barbaric. Elura's treatment of the Graces is perhaps a more common sort of abuse, even if it has the fantasy components of mind control and blood magic behind it. Elura actually cares about the Graces. She values them. She tries to take good care of them. But there is never any question that Allura's needs and desires take priority in the relationship, and she isn't shy about taking what she wants from them. She's fully aware of the effects of her vampire powers and her blood magic. She knows that they give her a dominance in the relationship that cannot be resisted if she chooses to use them. And, of course, when one side in a relationship can't say no, that's coercion, and coercion is abuse— no matter how much one might like to pretend otherwise. But it's the kind of abuse that people will live with for years without saying anything, sometimes without even being conscious of the fact that it's abuse. 
I think that's pretty much it. This is like my third time recording this because the other ones were four and a half minutes long. This one is slightly shorter, so I will stop here. Bye. Thanks for the great feedback, Sarah. It always brings a smile to my day. Nobilis Reed wrote in a reply to my question about last sunset at the Golden Gate. I had wondered whether it had enough sex in it to count as science fiction erotica. He writes, For all of the markets I've written for, if there's an explicit sex scene in the story, then there's enough sex to be published in a science fiction erotica anthology. Unquote. Thanks, Nobilis. I trust your expertise on this matter. That'll help me a lot when I'm doing my edit pass. I was worried I was going to have to add a lot more sex in order to make it a viable product for the market, and that would have stretched out the length a lot. I'm glad to hear I was wrong. Ted Stoffers wrote in with some technical tips after listening to the first few episodes of the show. Apparently, I needed to either relax my voice or adjust the EQ to increase the bass. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think of the show's sound now, since I've changed to the new recording system. I'm also recording in 24-bit audio now. If you can hear any improvement from those early episodes, or if there's something I still need to work on on the technical side, please write in and let me know. My hope is to be able to use this setup to record professional audiobooks, so I'd rather work out the kinks now while the pressure is off. Several people chimed in with comments on the cover mock-ups that I posted for the Metamore City Story Collection. If you haven't seen these yet, you can find them on Facebook, at Fans of Metamore City, and at my Chris Lester author page. The links will be in the show notes. Head on over and add your two cents worth. We have three new Patreon patrons to recognize this week. Okaron, Stephen, and Matt. With their pledges, we are now very close to our first milestone goal. If I get $100 of donations in a month, then before the end of the following month, I will write and produce a bonus episode of the podcast with a new story. That's on top of the rewards that you receive as an individual patron. If you want to help us reach our milestone, head over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make your pledge today. If you'd like to contribute feedback to the show, send your thoughts in text or mp3 audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, call area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with other fans, join the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group or the Metamore City discussion forums at metamorecity.freeforums.org. That's all for this week, folks. Tune in next time for more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The theme music for The Three Graces is A Girl Alone by Hungry Lucy. It was made available for use through Mevio's Music Alley, the Podsafe Music Network. Find more of their music at HungryLucy.com. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, 
but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.